Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. On today's episode of Speaking of Bitcoin, you'll hear our live two-hour Halloween special, which we recorded yesterday in costume on Andreas's YouTube channel. If you'd like to watch the video version, you'll find the direct link in the show notes. And this episode, just a heads up, is uncensored and uncut, so you'll hear a few not-safe-for-work words at particularly heated moments. You've been warned. We hope everyone had a safe and happy Halloween, and without further ado, I'll hand the mic off to Andreas, or Dracula, as he prefers to be called at this time of year. Greetings! I have been asleep for 12 years. I last fell asleep on October 31st, 2008. Jeeves, how are my investments going? Did anything interesting happen? <laughs> Bitcoin? My investments? Hey everyone, welcome to this Saturday special live stream. It's Halloween in the United States. And if you didn't know that, you're probably freaking out right now going, what the hell is going on and why is he looking like that? Well, this is a special Halloween a Halloween session, and for this special Halloween session, I've uh, completely changed my hairline, and um, I, I've uh, put on a cape. Otherwise, I come to you exactly as I normally am. Very good. But for this special Halloween today, we have three fantastic guests. For those of you who don't know, I have been a co-host on the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show since 2013 with my wonderful co-hosts Adam B. Levine, Stephanie Murphy, and Jonathan Mohan. Hello, everyone. Hey, Andres. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's so much fun to be here. Why don't you take us away, Adam? I'm going to say hello in the chat while you're doing that. Okay, sounds good. Hey folks, on today's episode of Speaking of Bitcoin, we'll be celebrating Halloween and the 12th anniversary of the release of the Bitcoin white paper. We'll share some stories from Bitcoin's past, the long ago of 12 years ago in some cases. We'll talk about the crazy things that you used to have to do to even use Bitcoin and the hard lessons that many of us learned about technology and personal responsibility along the way. We'll talk about shining examples, but also horrible warnings. We'll discuss products and narratives that didn't survive extended contact with legal or even behavioral realities. And we'll wrap it all up with an extended Q&A session where we'll answer your questions from our live audience. That's you folks. With all of that said, I'd like to introduce the hosts of Speaking of Bitcoin, who will each tell us a little bit about our Halloween costumes. Stephanie Murphy did her first Bitcoin transaction in 2012. She's a voiceover artist, talk show host, and former research biochemist. Hey, Stephanie. Hello, Adam. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Well, I chose to dress up as a deer because I live in the woods and I like it that way. Well, that's very good looking. All right, Jonathan Lyme Mohan disease. is a... <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Mohan is a community builder who played a key role in the evolution of New York's vibrant Bitcoin scene, a founding member of the Ethereum team, CEO of Thamus, and fun fact, is so smart because he literally won't stop listening to audiobooks at three times speed. Jonathan, what book are you listening to right now? And good day, sir. Oh, uh, uh, nothing redeeming, just good sci-fi war lit literature. Uh, I nice. figure, you know, America hasn't started a war in a while, so I might as well start one in my head. 
Okay, and, and your sign says the fork is nigh. What's going yes. on here? Uh, well, I am from the future. I am from the year 2141 when the last block has been mined, and I have been sent back in time to tell everyone that you must embrace the forks. If you don't, the Bitcoin will die in the year 2140, and I am here to say that there are only two people in this world, those against forks and those with the fork, and you must embrace the fork because the fork is nigh. A there are three people in the world, those who are allergic to forks because they are <laughs> silverware. <laughs> Thank you, Andreas. A sobering message for us all today. And of course, for those of you watching the live stream, you know Andreas M. Antonopoulos, author, teacher, and the man who turned his iconic hairline into a leading educational brand in crypto. Andreas, thank you very much for setting this up. Thank you. I've been waiting for a show like this for centuries. <laughs> well, I was going to say, Andreas, you didn't wear a costume today. No, I didn't feel like I should dress up for Halloween. So instead, I just wore one of my iconic shirts, Not Your Keys, Not Your Coins, which in itself is a horror story many have lived. And one we'll certainly talk about as we get into today's show. Uh, some of you may be asking, who are you? And I'm glad you asked. I'm Adam B. Levine. I'm an entrepreneur, a journalist, and for the last year, I've been building a new podcast network as an editor at Coindesk. I'm also the coolest wizard on this call today. So, <laughs> so thanks to all of you for watching the live stream and listening to the subsequent podcast version, and a happy Halloween to all. So kicking things off, uh, I'd like to just jump right in, uh, travel back to the very early days, the days before multi-sig, before SegWit, and even hierarchical deterministic wallets, whatever those things are. They're so, we're so used to them now. Back to the days when using Bitcoin meant running a full node, because there wasn't any other way to do it. And in this murky past, there were many casualties as we introduce our first horrific concept, the wallet.dat. Andreas, I'd like you to start us off with an explanation of what this horrific creation was and what we all suffered through in using it. Yes, so the wallet.dat is the first wallet that was created in the uh, Bitcoin QT or Bitcoin Core clients before it was called Bitcoin Core. Um, and I don't know actually if wallet.dat was the first in fact, but I think it was. Um, and it was a, an implementation of a wallet on top of a database platform called Berkeley DB um, that has quite a few problems with it, especially with synchronization and uh, backup. And to make things worse, the way this wallet was initialized was with a key management uh, mechanism called just a bunch of keys or JBOC, which basically meant the wallet would generate 100 keys completely from random, so no seed, no deterministic um, hierarchical deterministic wallet or anything like that. Those things didn't exist. It would just pick 100 random numbers and make keys. So, and every time you did a new transaction, um, it would see if it ran out of keys yet, and if it did, it would make some new keys out of random numbers, which meant that if you didn't back them up and something happened to your computer, um, you'd lose the latest keys. So you had to regularly back it up, um, but you couldn't do that with the software open because the database was in an unstable configuration and could get corrupted. So you had to shut down the software 
every now and then. It, it was just a mess. Lots of people. You also money. had to uh, download the entire blockchain onto your hard drive. And sometimes <laughs> I remember running yes. out of space. <laughs> yeah, the wallet.dat was interesting insofar as it was like a first implementation of this idea that we've come to really appreciate, and which has gotten a lot safer as time has gone on. But in that sort of early period, sort of the thing that you really wanted to avoid was using too many addresses because you would blow past the limit. And then if you then tried to recover your wallet and you didn't have like a very recent copy of this one file that you had to, you know, I, I have still have backups and stuff like that, right? That have just like tons of wallet.dats because I, on a couple of different occasions, had to change computers and wound up losing Bitcoin that I had received, but then my wallet could no longer find because I hadn't backed up the wallet.tat file recently enough. So that kind of led to this whole, um, you know, it led to a number of technologies, hierarchical deterministic sort of primary among them, which took that idea that your computer is just randomly going to generate these things and instead said, okay, instead of randomly generating them, we start with this and then here's address one, here's address two, and you can generate an, I believe, unlimited number of addresses using this type of system without necessarily having to constantly be backing up uh, when you use too many addresses. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with legacy technology. Um, as my kind know, there, there was a time when we used wooden coffins instead of stone ones. and It was just a mess. Uh, you know, uh, it, it could leak light from a window or uh, people could turn it into a wooden stake right there without sourcing other additional materials. Um, the, the improvement with stone coffins was significant. Well, speaking of permanence, uh, you know, another kind of early topic that I think is much more refined these days was this idea of the brain wallet, right? Especially in areas, you know, like where, for example, you're going to go to sleep for 150 years and it's potential that the parchment that you've gone to sleep with isn't necessarily going to retain all of the information that you need. Well, brain wallets made it so you could just remember, you know, a word or a phrase or a song lyric. Uh, and you would be able to then recover your Bitcoin with that. But there were some problems with that approach. Yeah, I mean, even even for a vampire, it's, it's hard to remember for 150 years. And, you know, some things are more memorable than others. You know, can I remember uh, a, a phrase, a song lyric, uh, you know, how Marie Antoinette tasted? Um, <laughs> some things I can, some things I can't. Well, and the so, ones but, that some people can easily remember, uh, they tend to uh, be reused. And so then you end up with different people who are holding the same keys and they're like, wait a minute, where did my coins go? Well, someone else had the same idea as you for a brain wallet. Some people would put them in Google too. And then that was just like exposing them to the entire internet as your has your keys now. <laughs> Wallet.dats too. Yeah, so the brain wallet idea, a lot of people um, overestimate their own ability to create randomness and underestimate the ability of other people to attack that randomness. So there's a technique in uh, information security called um, a rainbow table, a lookup table, uh, that's used for passwords too, which is effectively, if you think about it, a brain wallet is just a common phrase, like Mary had a little lamp, do not use that one. Um, and then that's hashed into a key. Um, well, here's the thing. Uh, it's not that difficult to hash a lot of common phrases. In fact, 
this is used to attack passwords too. So what you do is you, you take uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of words and common phrases and uh, song names and lyrics and um, stories and uh, TV characters. And in fact, on the internet among hacker forums, there are uh, hundreds of pre-built dictionaries that contain things that people commonly use from Klingon to Elvish to Star Trek names and characters to common phrases, all things like that. You hash all of those things and you make a database that is several billion entries. And then all you have to do is keep an eye on the blockchain and look up every address that appears on the blockchain to see if it matches one of the ones you've already created. And if it does, you already know the phrase that it corresponds to because that's the database you have and you simply spend the money. Um, the time it takes for a brain wallet to be seized today is 2.7 seconds from the moment it is broadcast to the Bitcoin network. 2.7 seconds and someone spends it. And it's interesting to kind of think about that as sort of the where we ended, but in kind of the earlier days, that was not really true. This was sort of one of the first opportunities that opportunists within sort of the cryptocurrency community found to be able to try and sort of systemically farm uh, people's naivete, you might call it, uh, through this sort of brain wallet compromise scheme. And in the kind of, I remember back in, in the very beginning, uh, this did happen, but it wasn't automatic. It was literally people who would just go and try all kinds of common things and uh, establish wallets kind of in advance. I remember blockchain.info was one of the big places where this would happen a lot. Um, but, uh, but again, like if you look at what happens these days in DeFi and with many uh, sort of smart contract driven platforms, where you have lots and lots of money held in these contracts. And there's no simple way to do it, like kind of with the old brain wallet, but you're still looking for those weaknesses in the system. You're still looking for those exploits. And although the difficulty of finding things that you can exploit has gone up a lot, well, the amounts of money that we're talking about now have also gone up just you know, at least as much, if not more, in that same amount of time. Yeah, I also remember when blockchain.info would send you an email with your wallet.dat file whenever you sent a transaction. And you'd have to think about which Gmail account it went to and how that's now there forever. <laughs> Those were fun times. Yeah, it was a it was a more naive time, certainly. Um, so another thing that kind of came out subsequent to all of this, as people were starting to become more concerned about privacy, was the idea of multi-sig wallets. And we're now on a, a you know a much later implementation, but those early implementations, even it's it's such kind of like a sign of where we started from, where none of this stuff existed. And so many things had to kind of be discovered by people doing the wrong thing first a couple of times before we finally got to the right way to do it. Yeah. And multi-sig was such a terrifying thing in and of itself. I mean, it, it, it came out and it was a very long time in Bitcoin time periods uh, before anyone meaningfully used it. It was, it was one of those things that you knew you should be using, but you were too afraid to touch. Sort of like how everyone knows they might or should have a solar panel, but they're really glad someone else does. Most people um, are terrified to touch multi-sig today. Yeah, well, I, I remember one, one of my, the funny stats was uh, when Ethereum did their crowd sale, they did it in the one system they could trust financial inclusion and security to, which was Bitcoin. Um, and they wanted it to be secure, so they used multi-sig. 
And so for the year where Ethereum had a crowd sale and had that Bitcoin in that multi-sig address, it was something like 30 to 40% of all multi-sig Bitcoin were the Ethereum crowd sale funds because they were, it was frankly that much effort it took to set up a multi-sig. And if you think Bitcoin multi-sig, which is implemented in the core protocol, is scary, um, you haven't heard about parity multi-sig on Ethereum, which is the one that failed, ended up having the smart contract underlying it killed, and then um, locked up at the time $150 million that had been raised by various companies that were using it as their treasury. Yeah, I, I, I think another interesting thing is that we talk about how scary and difficult to use things were in the past, you know, um, and, and we sound like, and like we're millennia old, you know, back in my days, you had to walk from the castle to the school every day. <laughs> um, uphill both ways. Uphill both ways in snow. But th the thing is the things are still difficult to use. Things are still scary for newbies, and we're nowhere near a level of maturity that will allow us to go mainstream and have more people easily adopt this stuff. It's just we have become uh, a bit more experienced and a lot more numb to the risks and the difficulties, so we don't notice them anymore. But if you talk to some of the people who are new, um, you know, um, 2019 users, 2020 users, um, they're still baffled and bewildered by all of this. And if, if anything, there's now so much more technology to try to learn. You know, you're right in, I agree with you in that, you know, there are still meaningful challenges in front of it. But I think that a lot of the way that Bitcoin has developed as a use case, moving away from sort of the base transactional thing, where kind of in the early days, we'll talk about narratives that didn't survive sort of the the, the years that have gone by in a little while. But um, but just that whole idea that, you know, like multi-sig, for example, in those first implementations, multi-sig was something that wasn't supported in really any wallet. And that played a, a large role in why it was so challenging to use. Sure, it was there in the protocol, but you don't use Bitcoin via the protocol. You use Bitcoin via some sort of wallet or other device that, that then is an implementation of that protocol. And today, if you want to go looking for, you know, multi-sig wallets that are easy to set up and relatively easy to manage, again, like we've come so far that we still have certainly much further to go, but there's been a lot of progress since then. And it's been, again, you know, like we feel like this has been a long, long time because obviously, you know, I've grown a big beard and, and Andreas has been asleep for 12 years, but it's only actually been about 12 years since even the advent of the technology. So if you compare that against, you know, most other things, I think that we're looking pretty good here. Um, I want to turn us briefly to sort of, and it's not really the origin story for the show, but one of the reasons why I thought that there was an opportunity to create a podcast about Bitcoin and a show about Bitcoin way back in 2013. And it was actually the third or fourth one that I had created by that point was because of another show that had existed and which had gone pretty aggressively extinct uh, in the in the run up to our starting the show. It was a show called The Bitcoin Show. Um, so uh, the Bitcoin show was uh, a product of uh, only one TV. It broadcast live five days a week in video and audio out of a New York City studio. Uh, one day a week, they even broadcast in Spanish as El Show de Bitcoin. So this was a very forward-looking enterprise. And I believe 
2011 through 2012. Uh, the Bitcoin Show is created by early evangelist Bruce Wagner and friends. And in the super early days was literally the only place you could go beyond the Bitcoin Talk forums to learn about the technology. And at the time, it's incredibly rapid development, even though as we're discussing, it obviously had some challenges. It's, it's where I went to watch news about Bitcoin. It was also the, um, I believe, the organizer of the very first Bitcoin conference that was publicly announced. And that, again, happened in New York City at their at their studio, I think back in 2011 or 2012. Yeah, about there. Uh, so the the show actually was uh, was quite popular and uh, was very well produced, mostly run by volunteers. Um, but they stepped on a landmine that really influenced our decision. You'll, you'll notice if you're a listener of the show that we don't really talk about products in any sort of a review or endorsement way. And that is entirely intentional. And it is because with all of these challenges that we're talking about, the ability to look at a product and be like, oh, not only is this a good product, but it's not inevitably going to blow up in my face is actually really hard to find. And so that is pretty much exactly what happened to the Bitcoin show is that um, you know, we're talking about these challenges with kind of the early ways that wallets worked. And one of the ways that people tried to solve that, one of the ways was brain wallets, which had the problems we're talking about. But another way was early web wallets. And today, when we think of web wallets, we're thinking of MetaMask and we're thinking of, you know, like, uh, what's another one? Edge. Uh, it's not really a web wallet. Those are applications. Yeah. Just the yeah. browser wallets, really, not browser web wallets. wallets. Thank you. Now they're extensions and browser wallets. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in this kind of early period of time before we knew better, uh, the, the, instead of looking like a MetaMask or something like that, where you are holding your own keys, as Andreas says, these were actually a lot more like the exchanges of the day. And you would basically have a login that you would go to a website for, and then you would be holding your Bitcoin there. And it would feel like it was your Bitcoin, but that whole not your keys, not your coins thing comes into play here. And... Uh, my my Bitcoin, which is what the wallet specifically that was endorsed by the show was called, uh, was either hacked or there was an exit scam. We still don't really know, as we often don't in these situations. And hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin were lost. I, I was looking at the stats, and I believe it's something like $1.8 billion worth of Bitcoin in current prices wow. uh, was lost. Luckily, they actually had 50% of their Bitcoin kept in cold storage, which at the time was an incredibly advanced idea. We can talk about paper wallets in a minute, Andreas. I know that you have some thoughts about those. Um, but uh, but uh, again, like this whole idea of how do you look at this space and figure out what is or isn't safe Stephanie, what did what was your experience with the early web wallets in the space? I remember um, blockchain.info and also InstaWallet. InstaWallet was another one that got somehow compromised and it lost a bunch of users' coins. And I actually had some coins in there and I remember like applying for a refund or something <laughs> and I got like half a Bitcoin back or something. I got like half of it back basically. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess that's better than nothing, but it definitely taught me not to rely on web wallets anymore. And, um, you know, those were good because you could tell someone who at that time I was really interested in like trying to spread the word about Bitcoin because I thought it was really cool. So I was telling people, oh, you know, you don't have to be that technical. Just go to instawallet.com or blockchain.info and just create like a login and a password. And then you can space store your Bitcoin there. And it was great to be able to tell someone to do that, but then it wasn't safe. And then they would come back to me and be like, hey, what happened to my Bitcoin? <laughs> you told me to go to this website. 
So <laughs> yeah, it was it was a common story, and you know, in the in the kind of aftermath of a lot of that, people started turn. They they were like, well, you know, there's no real business model here, but exchanges have a business model. Why don't I just keep my coins in a, in someplace much safer, like Mount Gox? Oh, uh, much safer. <laughs> exactly. So, Jonathan, what do you remember kind of about the, the early days of Mt. Gox when oh, that was seen as really a solution here? Excuse yeah. me. Before we oh. go into that topic, um, I just want to point out we've got uh, 260 people or so on live right now. Thank you all for joining us on this beautiful Saturday night. Um, and uh, thank you all for coming and participating. Um, for those of you who are wondering what the hell is going on, it's Halloween in the United States, which is a, a special costume day. Um, as you can see, we have all uh, dressed up as various variations of sexy nurse. And uh, yes, I'm the uh, recently deceased sexy nurse, but there's various other models out there. Um, and if you're wondering who these other people are, because you're on my channel and you're wondering what the hell is going on with that, um, I've been doing a uh, podcast, which has now got more than 500 episodes, I believe, Adam, right? 460, somewhere in oh, that range, counting the normal episodes. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're getting four, there. 460 episodes since uh, March or April of 2013. Um, and it is the longest running um, podcast about Bitcoin and related things. And uh, the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show, as it was called, is now called Speaking of Bitcoin, SOB. And uh, these are my co-hosts. Uh, so um, I'll pass it back to Adam so we can continue the conversation. Okay, sounds good, Andreas. Thank you for that. Thank you, Andreas. <laughs> So you know what? Actually, before we get to before we get to the the Mt. Gox topic and kind of the uh, era of exchange hacks that it spawned, um, let's talk about some just kind of early experiences in terms of scams within the space because this is a space that is notorious for scams and they started pretty darn early. Yeah, you know, I, I think the uh, the best place to start is pre-exchange, which was doing transactions in person. Right. I mean, the uh, there was before Mount Gox, there was something even worse, even more disgusting, and even more scary to do business with, and it was called PayPal. <laughs> and so what people would do is say, you know what, why don't I just PayPal you the money and you can send me the Bitcoin? And that's when, as a community, we learned what when you send it and you can't charge it back actually means what immutability means when it comes to no chargebacks because PayPal doesn't have that problem. In fact, it's not a bug, it's a feature. And so I cannot count the number of people in the early days of Bitcoin who would find someone on Bitcoin talk or find someone over Facebook. Hell, I did, I did a transaction for 20 bucks, I guess a, a quarter of a Bitcoin now. Hey, um, and uh, did it over PayPal. And because Bitcoin can't be charged back, a day later you find out, hey, I, I didn't have that 20 bucks I thought I had. And you, you got scammed. Which led to uh, the innovation that at the time was localbitcoins.com. Today it's something of an institution around the world, especially in places where exchanges <laughs> are not allowed. 
But at the time that was seen and it wasn't just that too. I remember there were um, John Light and a variety of other people engaged in what were called the Buttonwood uh, meetups. Uh, we did a number of early episodes on these and Buttonwood was a reference to the start of the stock market basically um, when the stock market had been basically just guys meeting at a coffee shop um, or in a park and trading ownership shares in companies. Yeah. And so, so that would in uh, in New York City, actually, back in early 2013, the community was talking about scary stories about people meeting in person and feeling very um, afraid for themselves and their security. And so uh, at the early meetups, we had this conversation. It was, it was like a two hour conversation. And we decided actually to meet every Monday at Union Square. So from about 2013 through to like 2015, um, there were weekly meetings in the park. <laughs> and the funny thing was this was during Occupy Wall Street. So cops were everywhere and people thought Bitcoin itself was criminal. And so they said, well, what are you gonna do a transaction? He said, the park. So why would you do a transaction in the park? And we said, cause that's where all the cops are. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And so, and so there'd be 20 or 30 of us. And so both for your own security, but for a normal person, someone who's new to the space, you feel a lot safer that 30 random people aren't going to rob you than one. Uh, and so yeah. one of the uh, least scary ways to buy early Bitcoin would be to, at least in New York, go to a park. Um, and in fact, um, it got to the point where I think there were over 20 of these uh, let's meet up once a week and buy and sell in person um, uh, Bitcoins. They were called like Buttonwoods or Satoshi Squares. Yeah, Satoshi um, Square was the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so um, and uh, yeah, th that, that was one of the ways where if, if BitInstant couldn't serve you and Mt. Gox couldn't do it and you were too afraid of PayPal, you, you would just meet in the park in your local city. I mean, your local parks, in, your local park in the city. Yeah, speaking of, uh, you know, trying to trade peer to peer using the existing banking system and PayPal, chargebacks weren't the only thing you had to worry about. If PayPal found out that you were selling cryptocurrency, they would ban your account or other other institutions too. banks. Um, some banks were accepting like, you know, you could drive up and deposit an envelope of cash into someone else's account. And they stopped that real quick. There were a lot of people that got their accounts shut down. And so you could you could find yourself unbanked uh, pretty quickly. Maybe that wasn't scary to some, but <laughs> for I, some people it could be very inconvenient. It wasn't until the Senate hearings in um, in November of 2013 that the different alphabet letter agencies in America said that owning Bitcoin in and of itself wasn't a crime. They went on the record and said that. And right after that sentence was said, Bitcoin went from 500 to 900. <laughs> yeah, but there was still a stigma. Yeah, there was still a stigma for well, many and, years. And that was that. another big reason why uh, why sort of the in-person uh, group event thing became a thing and why, frankly, local Bitcoins became a thing is because at least in the United States, Although the legal status about this thing was very uncertain and it was not at all clear that there wouldn't be trouble. I remember in the early days when I was starting shows, I started the first four Bitcoin podcasts that I did not using my real name. And that was because there was concern that, yep. well, putting this stuff on the record might be a thing. But the one thing we did know is that two people in a non-business setting 
you know, trading one thing for another, that's not something that can be made illegal if it's not already proactively illegal, right? You can't, it can't be retroactively turned into an illegal action. And so that kind of led to this in-person thing, which I think had a really positive impact. Uh, and Andreas, I'd like you to kind of take off from this one, you know, but it really started to build uh, a community of people who didn't just know each other on the internet, even though what we were talking about was magical internet money, you know, it started to build the relationships in real life and create the infrastructure that we've now seen develop into, frankly, an enormous industry. Yeah, and I, I at the time, for a brief period, I actually um, tried to help people get their first Bitcoin. So I would sell small amounts um, at, yeah, at most uh, a few hundred dollars. Um, a Bitcoin in person. Um, I didn't buy it that way, um, but I sold it that way and um, got cash. And it was really, and I was selling it at the market rate. No markup, no profit, just at the market rate. And the goal was to help introduce Bitcoin in a safe manner. There weren't any good exchanges. It was very difficult to find um, Bitcoin. And there were people interested. So. I would meet um, I would meet a person in um, in like a shopping mall uh, or a Starbucks in a in a public place with lots of other people so they didn't feel worried about it um, and I would tell people don't don't try to commit any fraud because you will be dealing with the police um, which if you're a criminal is worrying but if you're not a criminal is actually reassuring. Um, and um, uh, the problem, of course, was um, selling Bitcoin is much riskier than buying it. So if you buy Bitcoin in person, you can verify, uh, especially if it has escrow, that the Bitcoin is indeed real and yours. So you can just wait around for, a few, for one confirmation would be enough in most cases. Um, and then you're comfortable, right? You've got the Bitcoin, it's yours, done. On the other hand, selling Bitcoin is a bit more risky, and I did get scammed once, memorably, um, when uh, I sold a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin and um, was passed counterfeit uh, $20 bills. And I didn't know they were counterfeit. Uh, at the time, I wasn't sophisticated enough to test them. Um, so I looked at them thinking, I can tell, right? We can all tell. I'll look and see if there's uh, what looks like a watermark and if it feels right, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, turns out you can't tell. Um, and I discovered very quickly the, the, the forged $20 bills are remarkably difficult to tell apart unless you have a UV pen and you know how to use it and, and you can um, shine a light through it and all of that. So. Um, or I unless it gets wet in your case. <laughs> right. So in my case, I then uh, later that day uh, was at a bar with some friends and I uh, paid for some drinks and the bartender called me back and said, hey, dude, don't pull that shit here. This money isn't real. And I'm like, excuse me? And my $20 bill, which I had left down on the counter, um, had melted um, because it got wet. And linen doesn't do that but printer paper does. And it was a, a, a type of printer paper that was felt very linen-like, but didn't, didn't stand water very well. So um, they were very nice about it. I told them I honestly had no intention of scamming you. This was an honest mistake. Someone passed me this. 
Um, and, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, I didn't have a cop come along and stand on my neck for eight minutes. Uh, <laughs> and I was able to uh, laugh it off. What I did afterwards is, is funny was I took the, the forged dollar bills that I had been given and I laminated them together with uh, some real dollar bills and I turned it into an exercise. I would meet people at meetups and I would give them $10 worth of Bitcoin, real money, um, if they could spot the fake $20 bill in my little laminated card. So it became a lesson and most people couldn't. Uh, which it was a public service um, to, to help people know that it's very easy to, to defraud people. Yeah, so that was my lesson. And from that moment on, I knew I could trust Bitcoin when I can verify it, but it's much harder to verify things like US dollar bills and also gold, um, which, which started giving me some ideas about the real value of the system. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Stephanie or Jonathan, would either of you like to share a story about uh, your early experiences with Bitcoin or any early scams that you fell victim to? Well, I, I would say that uh, one of my most fun experiences when it comes with fear is the Bitcoin transactions, especially early days in Bitcoin, um, because there you hear something and even when you get knowledgeable, you think a number is like this magic line in the sand that means you're okay. And so people heard six confirmations means you wouldn't get a Bitcoin charge back. Six, the magic number six. There's nothing holier in Bitcoin than the number six. Um, and so if you had a one Bitcoin confirmation, that's just a hello. If you have a two Bitcoin confirmation, that's a howdy do. But when you get to three to four, then you're all right. But six, six is where the real magic happens. And so there was this fear out there that you would get you would get a uh, you would get wiped out that someone would roll back the blocks that they were, they would replay your transactions or do something and you can't if you sent that bitcoin you would never see it again and so I had transactions in 2013 with people where where we ended up waiting six confirmations where someone would say hey I want to buy bitcoin I want to buy right now. I'm a friend of this guy. We've never met before, but so-and-so will vouch for me. I'm like, all right, you can come by. Just stop at my place for five minutes and, and I'll, you'll be on your way. Sent a Bitcoin. And he goes, all right, well, I need to wait for six confirmations. And so I would have a random guy. This random guy just sat on the porch for an hour and a half until his six confirmations came. Got a lemonade, I guess, for free out of it. And, uh, <laughs> that was a fun time. Another time I had that was rather scary was somebody else I knew did his first Bitcoin transaction. And I think it was the first time I ever saw $16,000 in cash on a table, <laughs> which was which was scary because imagine trying to buy Bitcoin. There was no other way than a literal bag of cash. And the uh, value of that in terms of what you were actually getting for $16,000, well, compared to today, today it buys slightly more than one. I think I saw prices go over $14,000 again this morning. Um, and uh, But, you know, at the time you were talking about quite a lot of Bitcoin, quite, yeah, quite probably uh, a hundreds large amount. at that time. Yeah, yeah. but it, it, it was uh, certainly not me. I wish I had that kind of money, yeah, especially back then. But... Um, the uh the guy who brought the bag of cash literally bought brought an ex-marine with him <laughs> like, he's like this is my ex-marine friend he was a trained killer uh by the way here's the bag of money <laughs> like, yeah. 
you need the security to match the uh, the risk, I guess, right. involved. And that, that's well, another thing that I think people have fear about but don't realize, which is that um, the average retail bank has less than $20,000 in cash in it. And so when you're looking at soft targets, if you have more than one and a quarter or one and a half Bitcoin on you right now in your possession or somewhere in your home, you're a softer, richer target than robbing all the money in a bank right now. And that, that's something just to leave you with today that should scare you. <laughs> uh, let's take a, a, a brief uh, breather here. Um, and uh, we have 320 people on the live stream. Welcome to everybody who just uh, joined. If you're wondering what's happening, I'm here with my uh, co-hosts from the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show, now called Speaking of Bitcoin. And um, we are all wearing scary costumes because it is Halloween in the US. Um, and if you think Stephanie's costume isn't scary, you don't know about Lyme disease, ticks, and deers. Um, <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, I, I'm, a lot of people on the chat are asking, they're not quite sure what's happening with you. Um, yeah, so, so I just want everyone to constantly live in fear of the 51% attack. And yes. know that it is happening, it's going to occur, and it's not. It's just, it's just kiss your loved ones, say hello to your Satoshis, and say goodbye to them as they slowly divide <laughs> infinitely as 51% attacks occur. I mean, for many millennials, just using the word nigh is scary enough. <laughs> they have no idea what it means. Um, so, yeah, I think you can. I, I, I'm worried that you're going to get tired. So I think you can put your your sign down now that we've done an explanation. I don't know that we'll have too many people joining, uh, but you can kind of bring it up whenever you want suddenly, and and, and in case people forget that it is indeed nigh. Um, very good. Ah. Uh, one second. Uh, so a toast to my lovely uh, co-hosts. Uh, thank you so much for joining today. I don't know if you also have uh, a nice uh, beverage. Uh, this is a fantastic California Oneg. Uh, it, is, <laughs> it is not aged. It's from a young, young, you know, kind of like a Beaujolais Nouveau. Um, although the baby this came from was slightly older than a year. <laughs> So cheers to you all. Cheers indeed. So, Fantastic. <laughs> so I remember the first time that uh, that I was looking to buy Bitcoin. Uh, at the time, the methods that were available for me to do so, this was before the era of Buttonwood, before the era of sort of, uh, uh, you know, really any sort of meaningful methods. And I remember there was one person on the uh, Bitcoin talk forums, which was one of the very early places where all of the community happened at the time before we had this broad diaspora. Uh, that's come since and there was a gentleman who went by the name bitcoin morpheus who you could had an address in uh, dc washington dc where you could send an envelope full of cash and he would then transfer bitcoin to you and uh, at the time i believe bitcoin cost about like five dollars each something in that range and uh and I, and I was considering getting about 10 and i was like eh, you know it's just too risky just just too risky in hindsight not a great choice but uh but the kind of early you know unsupported nature of this there had been experiments like this before and i think we have a question we'll be getting to in the second hour 
uh, where we kind of talk about sort of the early origins of the technology uh, from Adam back that would later in part inspire uh, Bitcoin and the way that proof of work works. But Stephanie, you know, I think that uh, it was 2011 that you got your first Bitcoin. Is that right? Yeah, I, and I got it as a gift. It was like a, a tip for a radio show that I was doing and someone who was listening to it was actually a very, uh, ended up becoming a very influential uh, person in the the world of Bitcoin. Um, the original so, Bitcoin Jesus. Yes, the original Bitcoin Jesus. That was, that was who I got my first coin from. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for that because it changed my life for sure. I have a scary story about paper wallets. Do you guys want to hear that? Yeah. <laughs> so um, we haven't really talked about this yet, but back like in the early days, you know, everyone was talking about cold storage. Like after all these web wallet hacks were happening, people were saying, well, you shouldn't store your coins in a web wallet. You should store them in a paper wallet, right? Because a paper wallet is offline. And so I was like, okay, I learned how to, you know, use uh, an offline copy of the bitaddress.org website to generate private keys offline. So I had some friends who were doing it with like a graphing calculator, like one of them wrote a program to, to do it and someone was doing it with dice. I didn't go that far. I was just using an offline copy of bit address. But, you know, I was learning how to do this and made some paper wallets and was like, you know, using some for cold storage. And a friend of mine asked me how to do, how did I do this and wanted me to teach them how to do it. So I said, okay, sure, I'll teach you. And, you know, we went through it together. And then my friend proceeded to make a bunch of paper wallets because at the time, like, I, this may have even been before hierarchical deterministic wallets. And so each set of keys was a different address and then you would just kind of split up your coins and and put like one coin in each address or something and, and that was a separate piece of paper and so my friend was doing this but they were also like a digital minimalist kind of and wanted to keep the amount of paper in their life down so they came up with the idea to print these paper wallets to like a pdf or something and then store them as an encrypted file in the cloud and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty smart. It's like a paperless paper wallet. Well, there was a problem. There was a print to PDF problem with whatever browser they were using. And somehow it cut off the, the QR code that you needed to get the private key of like, there were five paper wallets on every page. It cut off one of them. And so my friend had already loaded all of them and they ended up losing 20% of their coins because then they couldn't access the, the paper wallet. So <laughs> they were lucky they didn't lose all of them, but things like that would happen. And then there's always the problem of like, what if it gets wet? What if it burns? What if it, you know, walks away? <laughs> so- And we didn't wallets. talk about and we didn't we didn't talk about the security implications of that wallet dot dat approach but i remember that there was like a meaningful decision that had to be made in the very early days when you were creating one of these do i want to encrypt this or not yeah because if you didn't yeah. encrypt it someone could just take it right like someone and there were instances where like someone used someone else's computer found an unencrypted wallet dot dat file and then would steal the Bitcoin from that. But there were also plenty of instances where people would encrypt their wallet.dat files and write down the password and then lose the password because you got to make it hard so they can't crack it. And then that was exactly the same problem. There were ways to that come back to from me. that though. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I got locked out of a wallet debt, like in the original Bitcoin QT client. And uh, then I had to have some hacker, like, like <laughs> I gave I gave them what I thought was the password and they tried a bunch of different combinations and they took a commission and gave me back some of it. <laughs> it was, yeah, someone, it was bad. I didn't want to do that again. Um, someone I know had a similar problem where they forgot their password to the wallet.dat and they were so desperate that they went to um, a hypnotist. Like, not like a, a circus hypnotist, not like a, a show hypnotist, like a, a psychotherapist who specialized in hypnosis to help regress them to the moment they were typing in their password and help them remember it. And it worked. And they were able to recover their wallet.dat. I mean, all of these scary stories, uh, by the way, I'm still fighting a battle on social media, especially on Reddit, with... Um, trying to persuade people that the DIY security to save $60 worth uh, of the cost it will be to buy a hardware wallet and instead try to build a Tails OS on an old laptop and oh, use yeah. Tor and bitaddress.org and Ian Coleman's Bit39 tool or do uh, paper wallets or do air gap machines. All of these DIY solutions are absolutely terrible. And I keep getting people contacting me, telling me their, their horror story of how they lost all of their savings because they tried to do some kind of DIY solution and then fucked it up. Um, so, and, and keep in mind, that's not because I'm against paper wallets. I, my first business in Bitcoin actually was um, a paper wallet design called Safe Paper Wallet, which came as a kit that you could generate and install um, and print out at your home, uh, and it came with everything you needed to do it. And it was it was okay for the time being, and it was designed to be able to give people the, a way to do cold storage uh, at bulk. But um, those systems are obsolete. Um, the Tails operating system isn't an operating system for security. It's an operating system for online privacy. It's not meant to be air-gapped. In fact, it's designed to go online. Um, it doesn't actually protect your operating system. Um, running it uh, isn't very secure. It's got far too much uh, overhead on it. The, the web-based wallet generators and C generators like BitAddress and Ian Coleman's site um, are for testing purposes, not for using for producing um, production level randomness. The average user can very easily get redirected to a fake site uh, and generate something that is either not random or leaks keys. All of these solutions allow people very easily to exceed their level of skill in the pursuit of um, this false sense of security. Um, and the solution is really easy. Uh, you, you, you spend $60 and you get a hardware wallet. If it's not worth spending $60, you don't have enough Bitcoin to lose. And, and if you do have enough Bitcoin to lose, buy a fucking hardware wallet and start wasting time trying to become a security expert at great risk. Um, that's a battle I keep losing because people keep jumping into every one of those threads and going, but but what if a paper wallet is done this way? And but what if we do it that way? But what if blah, 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 blah. and um, I'll just keep fighting it. We'll see. Maybe one day we'll succeed in in persuading people not to take these stupid stupid risks with their money. Um, so, before before move... there were uh, Ledger and uh, Nano related solutions, 
uh, one really did have to do it DIY. And you just reminded me of a story where I had helped a friend uh, buy a netbook um, and we went to PC Richards in person because we didn't want the mail to man in the middle of the, the laptop um, and ended up uh, explicitly buying a laptop just to install Armory on it. Because yes. Armory had Armory, the, yeah. uh, Armory. offline signing with a, a thumb drive. And then I remember putting all the software on the thumb drive so that this naked laptop never touched the internet and then checking the checksums to make sure that the software I downloaded right. <laughs> didn't get met in the middle before I installed it. That's, um, that you have to do that. But I mean, that's a process that for a security professional, you're looking at a minimum of 12 hours to create a hardware uh, a secure air-gapped uh, piece of hardware and install it correctly. And and it takes a lot of work. Um, it takes a lot of work. And that's if you know exactly what you're doing. I used to build air-gapped systems um, for my job, um, for companies that needed to do things like certificate signing um, for, for financial networks in the banking industry. And these are very difficult to do, and they're very difficult to do right, and they're even more difficult to maintain. And the maintenance protocol is incredibly complex, so you don't end up compromising it after the fact. And all of that work has been done for you in a hardware wallet. That's what a hardware wallet is. It's a laptop without anything that's unnecessary and an operating system without anything that's unnecessary that's designed to do exactly what you're trying to do with a laptop and an operating system, only done by people who actually know what they're doing. And Anyhow, it's so easy to mess up. It's so easy to mess up in so many ways, and it's so easy to mess up in ways that don't result in theft, but simply uh, reduce your degree of redundancy and resilience so you just lose it through uh, an accident. Um, hardware, uh, damage, corruption, whatever. Before we go to our next topic, uh, I do want to uh, point out that we are going to be taking questions from the audience, and in order to uh, to ask questions, um, you need to, oops, one second. Ooh, there we go. In order to ask questions, you need to use our Slido. Um, so we have a Slido for this. Um, to ask questions, go to slido.com. The event code is scary crypto, son of a bitch, uh, scary crypto, speaking of Bitcoin. Uh, which is the name of our podcast, and um, you can ask your questions there. Um, and keep in mind, if you ask a question that already kind of has been asked by someone else, you end up splitting the votes. We will only have time to answer 10 or 12 questions. If you see one that's close enough to what you want to ask, vote that one up. If you ask it again, slightly differently, you split the votes in half between your question and the other, almost guaranteeing that you, neither your question nor the other one that's close enough will get answered. That's some election strategy for you, just in case you wanted to think more strategically about elections anytime soon. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. So before we get to questions, there is one more area that I would like to touch on, and we're unfortunately not going to get to some of the stuff that I think would be fun. But one area that is fun uh, is the, we haven't really talked about mining at all. Uh, and mining was one of those narratives that in the very early days of Bitcoin, there was this idea of one CPU, one vote, which was taken by most to mean at the time that one CPU would be per person, and then there would be 
many, many, many people participating. And it was only through this sort of arms race of, of equipment that we've really reached the level of both security on the one side, but also kind of the industrial nature of the mining ecosystem today. But back in the early days, that was not true. And everybody wanted to mine. When you came in, this is still true today. People today who are new to the system will be like, oh, how can I mine? I'd love to mine and earn some free Bitcoin. But it's not really doable. But back you know, in 2013, when we were getting started, uh, it was. And actually, one of the companies that comes to mind, which isn't around anymore, is this company called Butterfly Labs. And they had this product uh, called the Jalapeno that was announced, I believe, in the summer of 2012 and then subsequently released a year or two later, far uh, far past the, the sort of expectation. Uh, very, very late, didn't really do what it wanted. But the Jalapeno was this, uh, basically, it was envisioned as almost a coffee warmer. That just this little box that you would pl uh, plug in, and then you put your co coffee cup on it, and it would use the heat being generated by the, you know, by the mining power to keep your cup of coffee warm. And uh, at the time it came out, I believe it cost about a hundred and twenty dollars. Um, and but I they remember they were taking pre-orders in Bitcoin. That's right. This was uh, one of the kind of continual lessons throughout of our, our time here in Bitcoin is that it feels great to spend Bitcoin. But later, it feels really, really, really dumb. And so I remember with this one, I pre-ordered one of them. And I think I paid 13 Bitcoin for it at the time, which at the time I was like, oh, this is great. The price of Bitcoin has gone up a little bit. And so and I'm, thought, I'm getting a You probably thought savings. you'd easily make it back, right? Well, I don't know about thinking I'd make it back. I don't know. It was just so hard to conceptualize sort of the price doing what it would then later go to do. Uh, you know, in the first year of us doing the show, when I believe I was still waiting for, uh, you know, for the this to be delivered, the the price of Bitcoin had gone up to hundreds of dollars and then to low thousands of dollars. And so this 13 Bitcoin that it seemed like such a great spend at the time on this device that I was sure was going to be really cool, wound up being something that later I was like, oh man, this is a terrible idea. And I actually uh, got a refund in, I believe the winter before we started the show. And I they gave me the refund in Bitcoin. So I got back like a quarter of the Bitcoin. But by having gotten that refund, I was still able to, you know, not lose everything that I had spent on it. But my total cost on that device when it was finally delivered, I think I calculated and it was in the thousands of dollars range. Um, and that's a lesson that that I've learned over and over and over again. Um, so, you know, I'll just kind of open it up uh, to to uh, to the rest of the hosts. But, you know, talk to me about like spending and things that you spent and, you know, what you later thought about them. And also talk to me about kind of your early involvement with mining to the degree that you participated. Stephanie, let's start with you. <laughs> I. I got into mining kind of late. Uh, at first I was experimenting with mining Litecoin. And at the time I was in school and I had access to a workplace with um, free electricity. And so I was like, hey, why not try it? And um, I tried mining some Litecoin. Uh, I think I was still a little too late to the game at that point. They were starting to use GPU mining at that point instead of CPUs. And so then I got the bug and I was interested in it. And uh, I set up like a GPU rig at my house just to see if I could do it. And 
I, I think I got a few Litecoins, but it, it really wasn't enough to pay for the GPUs and the electricity. Like it was definitely just a hobby. So I was, I was not doing it professionally enough. And um, the market uh, kicked me out, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> and uh, then later I, in a raffle or something, I won a cloud mining contract, like when cloud mining was supposed to be, was starting to be a thing. And I was thinking like, I don't, I don't think I would ever buy this. And I don't really understand like how this works. It feels a little bit weird, but it was cool to, to win that and just see like a payout come into my address every couple, now, every day. If you want to talk something. about something scary, cloud mining contracts. So yeah. back in 2013, it was way too hard to have enough skill to make a shit coin. And so the original shitcoin was just selling these fake digital certificates that claimed that the other person was mining Bitcoin for you. And it was very <laughs> easy to turn into a Ponzi because all you had to do was pay out some of the original investors in the mining from the income from the future investors, which made them feel like they were making profit from mining. And there's no way to verify that there's any machines running in the background that are actually mining. And this continues to this day. Uh, I, I get contacted at least a couple of times a month from people who have pulled in, been pulled into a crypto mining scam um, where uh, they're told that their payout is imminent. Anytime now they're going to get, uh, they're going to get a payout. And uh, that, of course, never happens. All right. Um, is everybody ready to go to questions? So we well, do let that? me just wrap that one up real All quick. Right. But yes, we'll go to questions right after this. Uh, so there were a number of, uh, I think we can at this point call them scams or Ponzi schemes that made extensive use of this whole cloud mining uh, value proposition. Uh, a particularly notable one was a gentleman named Josh Garza who ran GAW miners and Paycoin and a couple of other projects. And he actually did wind up, uh, it was actually quite interesting. It was one of the first instances of a community that was involved in a scam in cryptocurrency aggressively coming to the defense of the person who was running the scam. And I remember back when, when uh, Let's Talk Bitcoin was a full news desk, uh, we were working closely with a gentleman named Mike who ran a site called CoinFire. And he was all over that story and wound up getting into a bunch of legal actions with Josh Garza. And Josh Garza was eventually convicted of, I believe, wire fraud charges and sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Um, and he was also fined $9 million for that, actually. So it was quite a, uh, you know, this was uh, an early project, which took years to work its way through the legal system. Um, but yeah, cloud mining... You know, again, that that attraction that people have to mining at the point that it became industrialized and it wasn't really possible to do anymore. Well, <laughs> there were always people who were willing to take your money and tell you what you wanted to hear. And that remains true in Bitcoin today. So it's just another reminder to, uh, you know, keep your wits about you. And if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But with that, uh, Andreas, let's go to questions. All right. Let me uh, let me get this up. All right, and here is our first question, and I'm going to have to switch screens quickly so I can actually read it, because um, uh, I only became immortal in my 50s, at which point I already needed reading glasses. It's a tragedy for vampires. Um, what are the major threats and risks associated with Bitcoin as an investment, excluding sound monetary policy? Any technical threat? How about China's influence? This question comes from... Mahdi. 
Well, I, I will say that um, I've gone to a number of like internet committee events, like the World Wide Web and ICANN and other such related uh, organizations. And when you talk to people who sit on the boards of those organizations or on steering committees, especially early in the life of Bitcoin, um, they would say, you know, one of the concerns I have is how the backbone for this infrastructure is based in China um, and what the political ramifications of us agreeing to put our influence behind making this a part of core infrastructure to the internet would do. Um, I don't know how their opinions have changed over the years, but I can say that that, you know, that was a real concern or at least a real perceived concern um, by some when it comes to, uh, you know, global standards. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I think the China thing is overplayed um, in many ways. Uh, people seem not particularly worried about the fact that all of our computers, smartphones, and um, a whole bunch of other uh, consumer products are all made in China too. And so what if China stops making phones for us? Um, or <laughs> things like that. Or what if they um, attempt to manipulate uh, what hardware is produced for political purposes? Um, and of, of course, a lot of people are worried about that too. Um, but I, I think this is an overblown concern, um, especially when it comes to, to Bitcoin mining, but uh, that's a pretty controversial opinion. Let's go to our next question. Well, uh, I, I would I would tail in that with one last statement, which was oh, yeah. that um, in recent years, uh, China's actually uh, not found mining to be something that they enjoy at a governmental level. And so have been signaling to people, hey, this is not really the most preferred business you could be doing. And so you've actually seen a lot of the hash rate leave um, China. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the most interesting things that have happened is in the past couple of years, America's been become a very uh, competitive energy market. And you've seen a ton of very large uh, mining facilities actually uh, come to the States. So if you were to look at the hash rate, especially um, in relation to its trajectory, I would say that we've finally gotten to some level of geographic diversity and it's diversifying more and more each year. Our next question comes from Tom. What are some scary mistakes you can make with multi-sig wallets? Um, I'll start. Um, in order to reconstruct the multi-sig, you have to maintain a copy of the original XPubs uh, or public keys used in the multi-sig script. It is not enough to have backups of, let's say, in a two or three script. It's not sufficient to have backups of only two of um, the seeds because you can't actually reconstruct the script and the multi-sig addresses without at least having the public keys for the third wallet. So even though theoretically in a 203 multi-sig, if you, if you lose one set of keys, you can continue. That is not true um, if you do not have a backup of the script. Another thing that, um, that uh, I've personally fallen victim to is thinking that I'm doing the right thing by being really, really focused on creating a secure wallet. So for example, a three of three wallet uh, where you know I control all of the keys and then you lose a single key or one of them gets damaged or someone who is holding it for you is no longer holding it for you. 
and now none of it is accessible. So with you yeah. always kind of want to build in a little bit of margin of error for yourself where it's hard for someone to, you know, break into your house or whatever and steal one of your keys. Uh, and like that doesn't give them enough to get into it. But at the same time, you leave yourself some room to make personal mistakes because they can and do happen whether you intend for them to or not. Yeah, never use three of three, never use two of two. You should always have a smaller quorum than the, um, than the total. Also, there's issues with um, inheritance and passing them on to heirs. You know, yeah. um, there's a there's an entire book about this by Pamela Morgan, Crypto Asset Inheritance Planning, where most of the time, you know, people are concerned about security and people stealing their coins. But most of the time, the issue is that their their loved ones can't access their money after they're gone and they're no longer able to show them how to access it. So you have to sort of balance that. And um, yeah, that's that's definitely happened uh, to. I've heard of some examples of of this, you know, like where it's the security was kind of prioritized over the ease of access, which is always a trade off. Right. Um, recent recently, I had a an issue with a multi sig wallet. I was I was just like you said, Andreas, trying to import it into a different wallet from one multi sig enabled wallet into a different one. And I got the derivation path wrong or something like that. And, and I looked at the uh, imported wallet and I was like, zero, you know, like there shouldn't be zero. <laughs> and I panicked for a minute, but then I was thinking, oh, okay. I, it, you know, I just, uh, I just had the wrong derivation path, but it's not always easy to tell. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right, next question. Next question. Is DeFi a trick or treat? Now, uh, before we jump into this question, uh, a couple of points of clarification. Um, I've been living in the United States for 20 years, and uh, I uh, was introduced to Halloween during my uh, time here. It doesn't exist in other countries. So one of the things that happens during Halloween is children uh, go from house to house um, encountering uh, uh, their neighbors and they knock on the door and they say trick or treat and trick or treat is supposedly giving you a choice and the choice you have is between giving them uh, poisonous uh, sugar-laden treats uh, toxic uh, candy or having them exact revenge on your property um, uh, or self-esteem with a horrible trick uh, some kind of prank well I can tell you from experience, as someone who came to this country as a foreigner, um, this system is fundamentally broken. So in today's generation, when the children came to my doorstep and they knocked on the door and they said, trick or treat, um, smiling broad smiles and then hold out their little buckets and I would say trick. <laughs> they had no idea what to do next. They were totally <laughs> unprepared. They had only uh, asked this question rhetorically. They had always received candy. And apparently, uh, they did not understand the purpose of the other part of the question. And so when I uh, chose trick always, um, they were confounded. Uh, and did not have any follow through on their empty threats. So I would sit back and <laughs> laugh. <laughs> 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 
You called their bluff on the candy extortion. Yeah, candy extortion. Listen, you'd better bring some some weapons or some dangerous ideas or something like that. So, um, all right. So, is DeFi a trick or a treat? Who wants to go to that one? Well, DeFi is like a large thing, right? Like a large umbrella. What is it? I wonder well, what the person means. DeFi as a concept is perfect and beautiful and like rainbows and unicorns can never hurt you unless that's how you like it. Um, <laughs> specific instantiations of it, however, uh, seem to be far more uh, uh, trick than treat. Um, however, it seems to be getting better over time. But um, such is the nature of progress. Yeah, it, it used to be that when you were looking at a system that built on top of a blockchain and used tokens within it, you were looking at a system that was inherently centralized, right? So it's an exchange or it's a game or something like that. And it might look at a blockchain, but that was pretty much the extent of it. And the blockchain itself was very simple in terms of what it did. Typically, it was just about tracking transfers of ownership from one party to another or one address to another, irrespective of whether it's a new party. Um, what DeFi really did is it introduced the idea that you didn't actually need platforms that were external. You could do this all on, all on top of a blockchain that was, uh, you know, that uh, had smart contracts on it. And so from a, as Jonathan said, like from a uh, philosophical standpoint, it's this kind of beautiful concept where it's entirely accessible to everyone, cannot be censored in the way that a server can be. Um, but in practice, what we've seen is that adding that complexity to blockchains is very challenging to do safely. It's actually one of the things that, you know, again, having been doing this as long as we have, you'd expect that I think we'd be comfortable with much of this technology. But at least personally, I still find smart contracts very risky. And I still, you know, I, uh, I'm very reticent when I, I have to deal with anything because it is so permanent, because it is so irreversible. So from a functionality perspective, I think DeFi is very promising and I think that it's very much a treat that could have large impacts on the world as it goes forward. But as far as the platforms that are out there right now, I really do view most everything that's happening more as, as um, you know, like the latest form of gambling that we've seen in crypto, which has been kind of a theme that's come up over and over again. It might eventually evolve into technology that completely changes everything. But during this highly risky period, I don't know, it falls more on the trick side for me today, at least. I would say that um, a good way to evaluate this is in the decision trees of outcomes. Um, DeFi right now, in every single scenario where the technology breaks, the system breaks, there was a hack, your funds got stolen, something went wrong, any sort of failure point, if the decision tree is always, well, you knew going in this could have happened, ergo it was your fault, or oh, you weren't intelligent enough to deal with this. And there, every single failure point in that decision tree is just a carpe diem, you know, oh, you know, life is, life is funny. Um, that's when things feel more tricky than treaty. Uh, and I feel like a lot of this space is still so nascent um, that the answer is it's still an experiment, uh, means that we're still very much in the, uh, trick rather than treat phase of the solutions we have. I think that was largely true about Bitcoin too. And, and, you know, in the comparable era to where DeFi is today is like, especially with, I mean, like today we have a greater amount of certainty that the technology is robust and that the kind of obvious attacks or relatively easy attacks, well, they must not exist because otherwise somebody would have pulled them and we would have seen, you know, tra uh, tokens transfer. We would have seen, 
uh, compromises that indicate that it was the underlying technology. I think that, again, just by nature of the complexity within that system, that's pretty much where it, it is right now, too. Like the technology obviously has promise, but whether or not the current implementations of it have the robustness that's really needed for the amounts of money that they're holding in any given time, that is still very much up in the air. And I think we continue to, again, like it's, it's a lot like the early eras of trying to figure out how do you do wallets in a way that is both safe and accessible for people who don't have a mathematics degree, right? Like that's just, it's a hard problem and you have to do it the wrong way a bunch, a bunch of times before you figure out what the right way is just by elimination of the other options. Yeah, it's, it's a technology or a, a concept that's definitely worth refining, but nobody really wants to go first, except those who are very comfortable with risk. People are comfortable going first, but like yeah, I said, you know, like uh, big prizes, big risks. So yep, we all exactly. make our own personal decisions about that. All right, next question. Oh, right. I love this one. I find it scary that people send Bitcoin deliberately to burn addresses. What reason would be nice to hear your opinion on how many Bitcoins are lost forever? So there's really two parts of this question here. There's the burn addresses and what the heck's up with that thing. And then there's the, uh, you know, uh, the Bitcoins lost forever thing. And does that create problems or risks moving forward? So I'll just talk briefly about the burn thing. Um, and then uh, we'll go to the full panel for um, for the uh, kind of the lost forever question. Um, so Bitcoin burn addresses, like they sound scary, but really what it is, is it's intentionally sending Bitcoin or, or a token on another blockchain to an address that nobody has the keys for. And that under most circumstances, when people are talking about these things, has an address that is so specific that it would be impossible for someone to randomly create it. And so or, it is, or is provably unspendable, like yeah. the zero address in Ethereum. Right, exactly. Ethereum does have a specific address in it that counts for this. But in Bitcoin, you kind of had to hotwire it. Um, the reason why people typically do this, and it's not a particularly scary reason, um, there's, there's really two scenarios. One is that you are transferring funds into another system where you are taking Ethereum, for example, and you are converting it into something else, right? And so um, like the, the kind of, I think first major use of this was on the Bitcoin blockchain when uh, a token protocol called Counterparty um, was, uh, was enabled basically. And basically this allowed you to create ERC-20 like tokens or just arbitrary tokens. We use the system to create LTB coin um, which was a rewards program that we run we ran from 2014 through 2017 uh, for people who were part of the podcast network or who appeared on on the podcasts there um, and in order to create uh, those tokens there was a period of time where you would destroy your bitcoin and you would get a hundred of the counterparty token back for every one bitcoin that you destroyed and this was the only way that you could initially get them and the reason why they did it was because this came on the heels of another project called MasterCoin. And MasterCoin was doing basically the same thing. It was letting you create tokens that lived on top of Bitcoin. But um, instead of doing a, a burn, they actually collected money and they used it to fund the project. And there was a broad perception at the time. This was also the first ICO, it's worth mentioning, um, way back in the summer of 2013. Um, I think and, MasterCoin uh, beat it, but... Tomato, tomato. I think Mastercoin beat it, but tomato, tomato. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, Mastercoin was the first ICO for sure. Um, and it had raised money. And then it had, over the course of about six months, um, spent a lot of that money in ways that many people within the space thought, frankly, was not particularly productive. 
And so there was this kind of broad disillusionment within parts of the early token community around, well, we're just not going to collect money at all, but we still need some way to distribute these tokens to people so that they can be uh, part of this network. Uh, there are many projects that have struggled with this, getting people to care about their project, right? And the way that Bitcoin did it was, well, at first you could just mine it. And nobody really was mining it. So if you mined it, you got quite a lot. But as time went on, that became harder. But it also established that user base that then allowed people to actually want to buy it because they could see that there was some value in it. But for new protocols that were launching, they couldn't really repeat that because, uh, because of those reasons that we were talking about. So, so that's primarily why people use burn addresses is because you're transitioning whatever you're burning into something else. And you are never going to get it back. The point isn't to get it back. And really what it is, is it's a show of commitment. Just as when you're running, you know, a mining hardware, right? A mining computer, what you're effectively doing is you're wasting energy and you're, you're using hardware that can only be used for this purpose. That's not the thing that gives Bitcoin its security. It's the thing that demonstrates your commitment to giving Bitcoin security that then lets the network know that, uh, that you know, you are performing the work. It's not useful work in the sense of it's doing something productive, but it is useful work in the sense that we can measure it without having to know who people are. And it's much the same thing here. So uh, with all of that said, I think well, the, the more the, interesting- the, That's the definition of a deliberate burn address. And then there's the not deliberate burn addresses, which is every Bitcoin address to which you lose the private keys, which becomes mm -hmm. a burn address. Um, I have inadvertently created some of those. Um, for example, um, when I did the first example in my, uh, in my first book, Mastering Bitcoin, um, the address that I showed uh, in the first chapter um, that Alice used to buy a cup of coffee from Bob's Cafe, um, I managed to misplace the private key for that. It was generated just for that example. I, I kept most of the other ones, but I managed to misplace that one. Despite the fact that there were warnings all over the book not to send money to that address, people have sent, I think, just over two Bitcoin um, wow. by scanning and paying the book. I've even had people contact me rather upset and said, well, I sent the <laughs> payment, but not only did I not get any coffee, but also I can't get it back now. And I'm like, <laughs> you did what? Foolish peasants. <laughs> um, so that's uh, that, that's something that can happen, and you know your Bitcoin address can become a burn address if you lose the private keys. So then Bitcoin gets burned. So what? And and this is the interesting thing that that happens. It's it's an FAQ. Um, it's a frequently asked question. Um, if more people keep losing keys and the amount of Bitcoin that is locked up in these keys keeps increasing, is there a point at which this becomes a threat to Bitcoin? And I, I kind of have two answers to this. One, if you think about it from an economics perspective, um, as you reduce the supply of liquid coins, what that does is it increases the value of the ones that are actually in circulation. So every time someone burns a Bitcoin, um, they essentially distribute it as a gift to everybody else who holds Bitcoin in proportion to the Bitcoin they hold. So every reduction in the supply increases the value of the remaining amount by the same proportion as, as whatever was burned. Um, that's one answer. But there's another more interesting, uh, I think, long-term answer, which is um, it, it's now become apparent that these may uh, eventually not be burned forever. 
and the reason for that is quantum computing. So there is a possibility that at some point in the next 15 or 20 years, a quantum computer on a commercial scale becomes capable of breaking old ECDSA signatures and extracting private keys from signatures. So if these Bitcoin addresses have been used at least once, which means that a signature exists in the blockchain, that signature could be reverse engineered to produce the private key and that Bitcoin could be re-entered into circulation. This does not apply to Satoshi's early coins, um, because those were never spent, not even once. Uh, and it, it doesn't apply if you don't reuse addresses, because you've never spent it. When you spend it, it's empty and you never use it again. But if you keep reusing the same address and then lose it, or if there's a burn address that is spent at least once, a quantum computer could break it. Theoretically, you could reach a point where a quantum computer could reverse SHA-256, although we don't know any good algorithms for that, um, get uh, the public keys for those addresses, and then reverse those to private keys, at which point all of the coins, including Satoshi's early coins, and anything else that is locked and hasn't been spent, and hasn't been migrated to stronger keys in the meantime, would be spendable. Um, at that point, the reverse gift happens. So where before, every Bitcoin that's burned is a gift to the entire rest of the supply and proportion, um, once it's stolen through a quantum computer and brought onto the market, that increases the supply, which means uh, it's a bit like what happens when the US government prints a trillion dollars. That increase in supply is a theft through inflation from the value, the purchasing power of all of the money that everybody else has. So if that money enters into circulation, everybody else's money loses some value in proportion to that because there's a greater supply. So I think the, uh, the most upvoted question uh, right now is what do I do if my hardware wallet is lost, stolen, or damaged? Uh, let me see. I don't see that right now. Um, it's I'm... by Anonymous. It has a... Yeah, yeah. I see it now. Well, let me piggyback on that last question one more time. Uh, so another thing that I've heard from a lot of people is a concern that, um, that there may simply not be enough Bitcoin to actually use as a functional system, right? Because obviously there are many more people in the world than there are Bitcoin. And so there's this idea that, you know, well, you can't go down. You, you, so there's, there's this idea that that might be a concern is that as people continue to lose Bitcoin, it may actually impact the way the system can function. And right. the simple answer to that is that uh, Bitcoin currently is divisible to eight decimal places. And if you break out the math on that, and we were to treat every, you know, one of those Satoshis, which is what the eighth decimal place is called, as say a dollar, actually there's, there's enough, right? You could lose many, many, many Bitcoin. You could lose all but one Bitcoin. Um, and there would still be enough to use as a functional system. Mm. But Bitcoin's divisibility is defined in software. And so what that means is that if for some reason we do find ourselves where literally every Bitcoin except for one has been lost and we've, you know, got it out to eight decimal places and it's still not, you know, it's, it's just not enough. Well, there's nothing to say that we can't extend that to 16 decimal places, to 32 decimal places, well, so whatever number is necessary. There is one thing, there is a bit of a wrinkle there because oh, um, in order to extend the decimal places, you have to make a backwards incompatible change to the consensus rules, probably by introducing a new transaction version number 
um, that, that encodes transactions where the vout amount, the UTXO amount field, is encoded in more than uh, 32 bits of uh, data. In order to do that, um, you would need to do a hard fork. In order to do a hard fork, you need to get consensus from the vast majority of network participants, and it would require, it is a, um, a very easy change to make in the code, a very difficult change to make under consensus, and an even more difficult change to make if you're trying to preserve uh, compatibility and coordinate between all of the parties that will need to update their software. Every library, every piece of hardware, every embedded system that uses Bitcoin, every lightning channel that's built on top of it, will need to account for these new transaction version numbers. Um, and that is a massive coordination problem, which becomes a political problem. So it's not as easy as people suggest it is. Although another approach to this, which we already see, is the Lightning Network currently uses milli-Satoshi, so it's already added three decimal points to that. Uh, now if you close the channel, you have to round up to the nearest Satoshi. Um, but for uh, long duration channels, um, that's not really a particularly bad problem. What you could do is you could negotiate to move the balance in order to close it out at the nearest Satoshi. Anyway, uh, let's go to the next uh, question uh, since the Fort King has usurped my role as question moderator. Chaos. <laughs> what to do if a hardware wallet is lost, stolen, or damaged? Um, I think that's a, that's a very common uh, question, especially among new users on the system. And who wants to explain how hardware wallets work? Well, um, hardware wallets typically aren't themselves multi-sigged. They are the, the single sig key that you sign to send a transaction. And I believe for every commercial hardware wallet, the first thing they make you do is back up your mnemonic, your uh, your 12 words or 24 words or you know, whatever integer you like to have, um, and do something really important with that. Um, and use your hardware wallet, not necessarily as your vault in the you know bottom of the bank, but as your spendable thing that you can sign with, that you use transactionally. And a lot of people actually recommend, um, funnily enough, that you can use a bank to solve this problem, which is that mnemonic that you have, that, that, that 12 words, you, you take that, you write it, or um, what some people have done, which is actually etch it into a tin or, or metal. Or so steel. Fire or water can't affect it. Um, and then literally buy a safety deposit box um, in a, a bank um, and leave one there or leave multiple in, in different uh, retail um, safety deposit boxes. And uh, should the hardware wallet device itself break, uh, you have those, uh, those, those cold storage backups is, is one way to go about it. Yeah, so as long as you've kept a copy of your mnemonic phrase, you have a path to recovery. And you, you, whenever you get a new uh, wallet of any kind, you should go through a testing process. At least that's what I recommend. So you back up your mnemonic phrase. You send a small amount of money. Small is relative, of course, but something that will not make you cry if you lose it. Um, you send a small amount of money to that wallet, um, and then you send it back 
from that wallet so that you zero out the balance. Now, you're probably going to end up spending more on fees than the actual transaction is worth. That's okay. This is a test. Once you've done that, you delete the wallet or reset the hardware wallet or do a factory reset or whatever. And then you attempt a recovery from the mnemonic phrase. Once you recover from the mnemonic phrase, what you should see in the, uh, in the software part of this wallet is you should see the previous two transactions. Uh, so recovery from a mnemonic phrase not only recovers your keys and funds, it also recovers your transaction history. So you should see the previous two transactions, one incoming, one outgoing, the test. If you do see those, now you know that no matter what, you can recover from that specific mnemonic phrase. Things get a bit more complicated if you make them more complicated. If you're not confident in having a secure location for your mnemonic phrase, you might add an optional passphrase. Now you need to make sure that you can back up and recover with that as well, and that you can back up the optional passphrase and the mnemonic phrase in two different places where they're not sitting together, otherwise it's pointless. Um, lots of hardware wallets come with a pin function, but the pin function isn't necessary for recovery. It simply prevents someone who easily swipes a hardware wallet from your hotel room, for example, from simply turning it on and taking out all the money. Uh, it prevents it from being tampered with and they're fairly robust. So if you enter a wrong pin, it just keeps delaying longer and longer and longer, doubling the delay time every time you fail, um, which is a wonderful lesson in the power of exponential growth because you are very quickly shocked by how long these delays become. And, and that protects the, the physical hardware wallet from uh, compromise. But if you have the mnemonic phrase and passphrase, you don't need the pin because that's simply a device protection, not a key protection. Um, let me, um, with that, it's been uh, an hour and a half uh, since we started this. We're probably going to be able to answer four or five more questions. Uh, in the meantime, I would like to ask that uh, on the chat, if you do have the facility to use some of the custom emojis that come with my channel, now is the time to call for an emoji storm. Um, <laughs> so please demonstrate your custom emojis with an emoji storm. If you don't have the custom emojis, you can use um, the YouTube emojis and uh, identify yourself to the rest of the group as someone who is lame. Um, but uh, for those of you who have the custom emojis, try playing with those. In the meantime, we're going to go to our next question. Um, this is similar. Um, so let's see if we can answer this one. This question comes from a Leviathan. Um, I once had a Leviathan. It was very, very tasty. Um, in the old days, before Leviathans became extinct, uh, Leviathan is a, is a type of sea creature, like a kraken. Um, they made very nice ceviche. Ceviche from Leviathan is fantastic. It's delicacy. Leviathan asks, is real privacy possible when using a ledger device, considering ledger must surely see your IP address, device data, account data through ledger live? Um, I like to generalize this question because this is not a question about ledger. Um, if you are using a hardware wallet, there is always a software wallet component. And that software wallet component can be the manufacturer software wallet components, Ledger Live in this case, or in the case of a Trezor, it will be Trezor.io website. Um, or 
it can be a, a software wallet of your choice that supports hardware wallet integration, whether that's Electrum desktop or um, uh, various other systems that do that in, in Bitcoin. And of course, the same thing applies in other cryptocurrencies, like in Ethereum, for example, you can use MetaMask with a hardware wallet backend, or you can use MyCrypto with a hardware wallet backend. So the bottom line is, Okay, you've got the hardware wallet and that's protecting your keys, but the software wallet that comes with it, that constructs transactions, that monitors transactions, that talks to the hardware wallet, how much of your privacy is that thing leaking? Who wants to go? Should I go? Okay, I'll go. No, I actually don't know the answer to this. I'm curious what you have to say. Uh, yeah. Well, I would say that there are um, two things worth breaking apart here, which is just the difference between privacy and anonymity. Mm -hmm. um, anonymity is when people can see what you're doing, but they don't know who you are. Um, and privacy is when people may be able to see what you're doing, but they don't know who is the one doing it. Um, okay. And when it comes to the ledger device contingent upon um, uh, how you purchase it, they could have the info as to, hey, this is this person's credit card, and these are all of their transactions. And so it's it's very revealing. Um, the thing to note, though, is if you're getting to the level of um, privacy or anonymity concerns, where you're thinking about your hardware wallet and the software pinging um, information to correlate there, uh, you then are at the level where you're concerning yourself with how you source your crypto to begin with. The moment it touches an exchange, the moment it goes to an on or off ramp, or touches any sort of bank. Um, and then you're really talking about a level of um, obfuscation. That's a whole nother world of concern, I think, than the vast majority of people using it. And I think that um, the cryptocurrency space did itself kind of a disservice when it so uh, strenuously pushed the pseudonymity uh, of the space onto um, the way that people should perceive it or could perceive it. Um, because that's sort of a turtles all the way down problem that really comes down to how much of your life do you want to disrupt in order to maintain it. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying there aren't good solutions, but it, it comes out being, is the wallet really the area where you are most um, non-private? Um, because if you're not even thinking about where you're getting your Bitcoin, um, then where you're storing it is not going to be the place that ends up, you know, removing your privacy. Right. So the first thing is that when you bought it on an exchange, the exchange not only tied your identity through know your customer regulations to that specific Bitcoin, but then when they withdrew it, um, they tied it to the address you withdrew it to and from then kept tracking it. Now, the, the way they do this is through uh, a Faustian deal, um, which is, you know, a vampire's favorite type of deal. And uh, a Faustian deal is where um, they buy a service from a surveillance company. But the, um, the way that they have to buy the service is that in order for the surveillance company to send them a score on every address that they want to check for compliance with regulations, they have to send in return to the surveillance company every identifying information that they have on every address that they use which means they feed the surveillance companies the data that the surveillance companies use to feedback scores to them. Uh, even if they're not trying to score a specific address, they still have to send all of the necessary surveillance information. 
So with what happens then is that these surveillance companies sell this information, um, well, pretty much to everybody. And uh, even if they don't sell it directly, there's nothing really preventing others from uh, compromising that data, buying it secondhand from someone else, constructing databases, monitoring some of the buyers, uh, breaking into communication networks, and that data leaks. So the fair assumption there, the safe assumption, is that that data is in the hands of everyone, right? So once collected, that data is known to every intelligence agency, every law enforcement, every dictator, every authoritarian, every warlord. Um, they get this information and they are able to buy this information either on a direct market or a black market. That's your biggest problem for privacy, not the wallet you use. Now, if you really want to focus on this specific question because you've already solved everything else, you've only bought your crypto face-to-face -face, anonymously through Bitcoin ATMs while uh, wearing a disguise like Adam down there, um, then maybe you want to move to this problem. And in that case, uh, you can take a number of steps. And the, the first and most important step you take is you run your own node. You run your own Bitcoin node. Because then, instead of asking a service, hey, can you tell me if this address has received money? Which, of course, when you ask that question, it identifies that you're interested, by you I mean your IP address, is interested in this address. Um, and that leaks some of your privacy. Instead, what you're doing is you're getting information on every address onto a local system and only asking that. Similarly, when you construct a transaction and broadcast it, if you broadcast it through a third party, they associate the IP address it came from, whereas if you inject it through your own node, uh, then it gets propagated through the network and none of the nodes can really tell um, where it's coming from. It's a much harder proposition. So run, run your own node and run uh, wallet software that allows you to connect to your own node to run your hardware wallet. And there's a bunch of those that you can use. Uh, for example, not only must you not run your uh, not only must you run your own node, but then the next next level of paranoia is to never Google search or click on a block explorer link for any transaction involved in any of your addresses because then whoever has your internet logs will obviously know that you were checking an address associated with one of your transactions. Um, I was talking to a friend about this who was dating a vegan and she was like, I don't know how long this relationship's gonna work out. I I'm dating this vegan, you know, so much about our relationship is now about his veganism. And I'm like, yeah, but you're a Bitcoiner. <laughs> like, like so much of your life is about money and how you want to use money and how ethically you want to make your life about money and he's with you on the, the Bitcoin side of it, so maybe you should meet him on the vegan side of it. Monetary um, vegan I, is I an interesting like, concept. Uh, I, I just want to say that veganism is a very disgusting topic <laughs> for a vampire, and I, I don't think you're being sensitive enough here, Jonathan, bringing my, up my topics like that. My apologies to the bloodsuckers you know, among us. Listen, I'm a homovore, uh, which means <laughs> I, I eat homo sapiens, and um, vegans taste disgusting. Uh, <laughs> so, so too so, much garlic too when, much when it garlic comes to privacy, not much hemoglobin when it comes to privacy privacy ends up being a concern of a number of factors but the highest level of it is how much of my life my routines and my ordinary going ons or how much literally in terms of minutes per day 
um, am I willing to sacrifice or pay in service of trying to achieve this level of hygiene? Um, and it really does turn into something where, you know, the level of effort is you might as well be a vegan because uh, it, it could end up controlling your life. Um, so pick, pick a level of privacy, stick to that, and um, try to evaluate everything consistently because for the vast, vast majority of people, it's not going to be their ledger wallet that is the, the problem when it comes to the level of privacy that they're trying to achieve. But like we've talked about on the show, it's not an all or nothing thing. It's it's not like binary, either you're private or you're not. There's levels of privacy. And so you can move up the the staircase of privacy, you know, by learning uh, different techniques. All right. Next, next question. question. Um, yes to crypto, um, who you, you guys don't know, but is a... Uh, um, a long, long time uh, participant of this uh, live stream is asking regarding scaling. The halving event every four years reduces the new supply. Why not also regularly increase block size over time so it keeps up with technology? Now you're Whoa, taking this into did politics. Did Gavin Andreessen get on the chat? <laughs> is that what just happened? Well, um, I, I, so the. The halving event reduces the amount of Bitcoin in each uh, new block, um, but it has no relationship to the block size. But I'm assuming that if you increase the block size, you can then scale the amount of transactions, which is the main right. concern. The really simple answer, why not also regularly increase the block size over time, is because there isn't enough consensus to do so. Um, people can't agree on how to do it, how much to do it, and when to do it in relation to other scaling choices. And because that debate um, very quickly descended into the politics of who should have the power to make that decision, um, that created a situation where the fork is nigh! The fork is nigh! Yeah, and... Talk like that gets us forks, yes to crypto. That's what happened. <laughs> do you that's want what forks? When we ask about block size. Do you want forks? Because that's how you get forks. So um, yes. So the bottom line is that um, technically, sure. The problem is that this is not technically um, separate from the politics of it, and this question go boils down to who should make the decision. I anticipate that in the long run. Um, as other scaling choices are explored, whether that's uh, layer two solutions like Lightning Network that get developed more, and then um, Snore signatures and other optimizations of the transaction signatures, signature aggregation, et cetera, et cetera, um, we will reach a point where the next logical step would be a modest increase in the underlying block size, which because of all of the other things that have been optimized then gets multiplied to create a much bigger effect in scale. Uh, it, it's like a um, it's like cascade effect, right? If, if, you, can, if you can get 10,000 times the capacity with Lightning Network than the base blockchain, and then you double the base blockchain, now you can get 20,000 times more capacity with the Lightning Network. So I do think that might happen um, but uh, it's very contentious. All right, um, should we go for another question, or do you want to keep answering this one, Adam? L let me let me take this for just one second. Um, so the 
the thing about the block size and the thing about this whole sort of political back and forth that happened over it a number of years ago really comes down to what is Bitcoin? What is it for? What is it supposed to focus on as far as like, what is the most important thing if we have to make hard choices and sacrifice things that are not most important? And we didn't get to it in the first hour of the show, but there are a number of sort of narratives around Bitcoin, but two primary ones. And one of those was the idea popular very early on for many of the early users that the point of Bitcoin was to completely remove middlemen from person-to-person -person transactions and to basically take what we were doing with the very early times in, in Buttonwood and Satoshi Squares, where we would meet in person and you know trade, basically, um, and to make it so that that could happen for everyone in the whole world. But the challenge of it is, of course, is that Bitcoin is a decentralized system and decentralized systems are inherently less efficient than centralized systems. It's why it's much easier even today to use something like an exchange versus using something like a Bitcoin wallet for certain types of functions, uh, like trying to buy Bitcoin in the first place. That's still a really hard problem. And it's the same problem that we were effectively dealing with way back in the day. So Bitcoin, as time went on, became much more focused on the long-term sort of reserve-like characteristics, uh, the store of value proposition rather than the means of exchange proposition. And as the world has developed, it's kind of become obvious that we may also get that means of exchange uh, you know, through layers on top as have been discussed, but that the most important thing is that basically that you can build the, the medium of exchange use case uh, on top of the store of value use case, but you can't really build the store of value use case on top of the medium of exchange use case because they have security implications and decentralization implications. Simply put, the bigger the blocks get, the harder it is for the network to remain decentralized and the more challenges that arise from that. So at least in the short term, it seems very unlikely that there will be any sort of meaningful consensus on this. And in fact, this crystallized with, as Jonathan said, the fork that then led to Bitcoin Cash, which has subsequently forked into several other um, also use cases. And that is, that's their entire value proposition is focus on the medium of exchange part of the use case first, and then hope to get to the store of value use case from there. But it's not say, a straight it, line. Yeah. Doesn't one of those forks, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar Please. with the details, but don't, don't at least some of those forks have um, increasing block size over time or just unlimited block size? Um, so and yeah, we even followed used. them. That's right. Yeah, we haven't followed them too closely, but broadly speaking, yes, they have definitely increased block sizes and have various philosophies around what the how that should go forward. Some of them are committed to code, um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of the the challenge there is that Bitcoin is has always kind of been this thing where it's like, well, it it is whatever you think it is, but it's also a consensus driven system, which means that it's not whatever you think it is; it's whatever most of the network thinks it is, as far as network participation is concerned. And at least right now, the focus very much is on store of value. And so the blocks will stay small because it maximizes those characteristics, at least for the time being. I, I'm telling you, you never really appreciate store of value until you go to sleep in 1912 with your entire retirement account of $2,000 that can buy one or two really nice castles at the time. And you wake up in, in, in 2017 and, and suddenly you can't buy anything with that kind of money. You know, inflation is really a bitch when you look at it on the scale of a century. Um, so uh, let's go to the next question here. The next question comes from Anonymous. Uh, is the actual mempool size scary? Man, it's huge. 
What problems could this lead us to? A brief explanation before we dive into this question. The mempool is the backlog or queue of unconfirmed transactions that are waiting to enter the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, it is not one mempool. It, there are mempools on every participant node, but they more or less contain the same stuff. Um, it's a decentralized data store, essentially. And right now, um, the mempool size, uh, the number of transactions waiting for confirmation is at an all-time historic high. Uh, I think it just passed yesterday the all-time high in 2017. It's more than uh, 90 megabytes. It's more than 90 blocks, basically, worth of transactions waiting for the next block. And what that does is it increases the price at which you get confirmed quickly. So the current, uh, I believe, average price to get confirmed in the next six blocks is somewhere around 350 Satoshis per byte, um, which is expensive. Um, yeah. And is that like the you know how a lot of wallets kind of overestimate the fees in order to just be on the safe side? Is that like, how much of that is driven by wallets behaving that way and how much of it is real? And if it's 350, if, if the base price is really 350 Satoshis per byte to get confirmed quickly, what are the wallets uh, prompting people to pay? And like a lot of people must be doing that. Yeah, just to put this into dollar terms, the value of one of these transactions in like dollar figures is somewhere between ten and thirteen dollars per transaction. Is transaction what we're seeing on fee. average through the network. Yeah, yeah. You wow, have to pay ten to thirteen dollars worth transaction fees, which is still not bad as an international wire transfer, which costs thirty-five dollars. But uh, it is pretty shocking. Um, now, it depends on the size of the transaction you're doing. Um, just a week ago, we had the largest transaction ever recorded on the blockchain, one point fifteen. A billion dollars was sent, a 88,000 Bitcoin, and that went through for a transaction fee of three dollars, um, or three dollars fifty at the time. So you know, um, if that's what you're sending, but if what you're trying to do is buy a cup of coffee, uh, which I believe at current Starbucks prices is what um, fifty or sixty dollars. Uh, <laughs> how much is a cup of coffee nowadays? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's probably only three. Um, you know, paying $13 for the transaction fee to buy a cup of coffee that costs $3. Basically, the, the, the base blockchain for Bitcoin is, is not suitable for small payments when, uh, when the blockchain is as congested as it is now. Uh, why is it congested? Because we're having a bull run and everybody's excited to get in or get out. Um, and there's not enough space for everybody to get on this bus. So... Um, yeah, it, what problems could this lead us to? I mean, a lot of new people are coming in with really, really crappy wallets, um, exchange wallets, custodial wallets, wallets by blockchain.com, formerly known as blockchain.info, uh, and other wallets that have really, really bad um, fee estimation uh, technologies. So they end up overpaying uh, even in a congested, as, as Stephanie was implying, you know, 350 is what the mempool is telling us the average price is to get into the next block. Um, but uh, many wallets overestimate that uh, and are probably suggesting, you know, five, six hundred 
uh, Satoshis per byte uh, as the appropriate fee to get in. Um, so the best advice I can give you right now is wait. And uh, to tag on to that, for anyone who is interested in this topic, uh, we actually, the next episode of Speaking of Bitcoin that we have coming out, I believe it'll be next week since we did the live one this week, is explicitly on fees and talks about many of these things in much greater detail than we have time to go into here. But the reality of it is, is that fees in cryptocurrency is a very interesting and nuanced type of system that actually has two modes. It has the mode where blocks aren't full, and then it's basically whatever you want to pay, and the miners will take anything that they can get. And then once blocks are full, like you have the situation now, then it becomes a competitive auction kind of price discovery game, um, which you know on the one hand means that some shenanigans are possible. It's especially possible to front run people, um, you know, when they're especially in DeFi type applications. We've seen this a lot on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, is that these transactions, once they go out there, they actually are public, even if they're not included in the blockchain yet. And then seeing that, you can have bots that are set up that take advantage of that and will make a trade right in front of you so that they can raise the price a little bit for you and make a little bit of money for them, as we see in sort of traditional markets, except in traditional markets, it typically is like a stock exchange that's selling data to a hedge fund or something like that. Well, in crypto, you don't need to be a hedge fund. You can just be a guy who programs a bot or licenses a bot or, and, or know uh, what the word hedge means. Yeah, right, exactly. So uh, so yeah, so like I said, uh, if you uh, are interested in this topic kind of more broadly, I believe that that episode will be appearing on the YouTube channel as well, or you can subscribe to uh, Speaking of Bitcoin as a podcast, and that'll be on uh, SOB pod, SOBshow.com or LTBshow.com, depending on where you want to go. Next question. I think this is our final one, Andreas. This will be our final question for the day. Uh, I think we, we've ran this for about two hours. It's been a lot of fun, but we do it's have to wrap it up. So final question for the day. And for all of those who did not manage to get one of their questions asked and answered, I'm very sorry. Um, our question mempool is also pretty busy and <laughs> we, we do not charge a fee. Uh, we require a voting mechanism in order to figure out who we should answer. Um, so that's, that's the reason why. Sorry for that. This is our last question for the day. What is the biggest crypto scam you have fallen for? So let's answer this. Let's be honest and vulnerable and, uh, and speak about, uh, the actual scams we have fallen for. Sure. Right. I, um, I had the pleasure the honor, the great joy of purchasing my first, and I think to this day only, Litecoin off of a wonderful exchange called Cripsy. <laughs> um, and so I thought it was a good idea to take an entire Bitcoin. And you know, this whole, this whole silver to gold thing, it's a dumb argument, but I, I'm buying it, right? And I said, let me just, let me just, get, let me just get some Litecoin. And so the only place you could really do it was on Cripsy. So I, I sent them a Bitcoin, and, and to this day, Big Vern, I think, still has my Litecoin. All right, who wants to go next? Stephanie, you want to go? I'm still thinking about it. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> um, so uh, I was very enthusiastic about many of the early token movements. And uh, as far as scams are concerned, 
Um, I did fall victim to an ICO scam in 2016 or 2017. I think it was probably 2017 um, for a, a project that I can't even remember the name of it. Uh, it was basically a, a, like a, a tokenized gaming platform. I mean, I was very excited about these concepts and I put in a not small amount of money to it. And then two days later, the project closed and I was like rushing to get in because I had been watching it for a while and I was kind of, you know, just like, so I, I was rushing to get in and I put it in and then uh, the sale closed and two days later, later, project gone, website gone, completely gone, didn't even try. Many projects out there raised money and then didn't actually deliver on it. This one actually just took my money and then was out the door and I never heard from anything about it again. And as far as I can tell, nothing ever happened with that project. That's Adam, probably Adam, that's the, unfair. The... I thought the best game you sent money to was Butterfly Labs. <laughs> yeah, but at least they gave me a partial refund. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, it, a long time ago, uh, someone gave me a paper wallet as a payment for something. And it turned out that it was Photoshopped. And when I went to redeem it, it redeemed for nothing. <laughs> I was pretty mad. Yeah, I'm still so, mad. <laughs> so, so when it was photoshopped, like, uh, did you, you like check the public key, but then the private key didn't match, or or yeah, that the the private key was different than yeah, it, it should have oh, been. Oh, yeah. nice. That's yeah. a, that's a smart. That's a pretty smart scam. <laughs> um, all right. I, you know, I mentioned earlier um, selling Bitcoin for counterfeit U.S. dollars. Um, I think that's the only time I've ever been scammed. I, I have made regrettable purchases. Uh, in 2013, I bought coffee um, from some seller in Colorado who sent me one pound. Uh, of beans and it wasn't even arabica beans it was robusta which is the shit of coffee and i paid five dollars for a pound sorry five bitcoin five full bitcoin for uh, a pound of coffee at the time i think bitcoin was six dollars each so that five bitcoin was worth about thirty dollars which uh included shipping and handling people uh, and hey. I also bought some socks um, for Bitcoin back in 2013, very early 2013. So about at the same level. So I probably spent maybe two or three Bitcoin to buy a pair of socks. Um, those are regretted, but I haven't actually been scammed. I've never bought into um a cloud mining enterprise or um had money stolen from one of my keys or um bought into a i have bought a couple of um i guess at the time we'd call them altcoins um that have since not gone well but i uh, but they weren't scams they were simply they were good ideas that the, the business model simply didn't work out and really small amounts for there. Um, I think we've all been there with like, you know, hey, let's see where this goes. And sometimes it goes nowhere. <laughs> I think I think the biggest scam I participated with in my life was um, I took as much money as I could and put it aside to buy some Bitcoin. And then a month later had to exit my entire position 
uh, because I had to go to college that semester. Um, and then three months later, Bitcoin decided to do a 40X. Yeah. So yeah. going to college that semester, I think, was probably one of the greatest <laughs> scams of my life. Yeah, my uh, rent payments in um, in July of 2013, where I had to liquidate more than half of my Bitcoin in order to pay rent, because at this point I was losing money faster than I, ever in my life, and I didn't have any income or savings. Um, I liquidated half my Bitcoin to pay rent, um, and uh, then over the next couple of months, I spent the rest of my uh, Bitcoin at the time to, to send money to my family. And and it wasn't, it was what, like four months later, five months later, when it did the big $100 to $1,000 jump. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I, I cried. <laughs> well, you All know, right. when we were talking about the burn conversation, I was also thinking of, uh, you know, the regrettable purchases that we all might feel that we've made. And, you know, I think we can make ourselves feel better by thinking that we were contributing to the ecosystem and we were making a contribution to Bitcoin being and cryptocurrencies being more useful and something that, you know, people actually use and that enriches us in the future. <laughs> I think that's a very Maybe. good way to look at it, Stephanie. There were a couple <laughs> of other questions that we're not going to have time to get to, but I did want to mention as we wrap that um, there was one in there that I think has disappeared since that was about uh, basically can blockchains help with voting and can they help create uh, a stable and secure system for voting in the future? That is one of my favorite topics. It is a very fun conversation and it's one that we'll probably have in about two weeks on the Speaking of Bitcoin show. Yeah, think, actually, that's going to be... That's going to be the perfect time to talk about uh, elections on the blockchain, um, as we noticed how elections off the blockchain go. Yeah, sorry, uh, Jonathan, you're. I, to... I was going to say I think blockchains can most certainly help voting, but it's a it's a feature looking for a, a solution because uh, or a problem, because I I would also say that at least in America. Voting is feature complete. It, it is designed as it is intended to be, and what you are perceiving as bugs are the designed features. So I don't necessarily know if blockchain can fix the problem of the philosophy behind whether or not a system has a problem or is feature complete. Well, uh, let's take that uh, conversation up. Um, before we go, I wanted to uh, thank everybody for joining us today. We, we ended up with almost 400 people uh, joining our live stream, which is a wonderful turnout for our, our Halloween special. If you're wondering who the other people on this um, little grouping here are, um, they, these are the people I've been doing the uh, original Let's Talk Bitcoin show, currently called Speaking of Bitcoin, which we've been doing weekly since 2013, since early 2013. It is the longest running podcast on uh, the topic of Bitcoin, but we also talk about open blockchains and many other related uh, topics. Um, and so I would like to very quickly say this is Dr. Stephanie Murphy, my co-host on the show. Um, uh, this is Jonathan Mohan and the founder of Speaking of Bitcoin, oh, down there, is Adam B. Levine. And so uh, we really enjoy doing this show. We normally do audio only 
Um, and there's a good reason why we do audio only. Uh, I spent an hour in hair and makeup today, and uh, and trust me, that's that's a lot of time. So audio is is much much better. Um, but we continue to do this show. A lot of people who uh, have watched my videos and and listened to my work, I'm sure, have never heard of this show, and uh, that's a real shame. So we're going to do something new. And this is one of my announcements that I didn't pre-announce, um, which I wanted to tell you a bit about today. Um, as of this uh, joint episode that we did today, I'm going to be featuring uh, past, present, and future episodes of Speaking of Bitcoin. We might even eventually reintroduce the back catalog or feature episodes from the back catalog. But from now on, you will be seeing episodes of the original Let's Talk Bitcoin show, also known as Speaking of Bitcoin, on the YouTube channel um, and also on other platforms, including my website, so that more people can enjoy these great conversations. Um, there is something special about being able to have these conversations with my three good friends. Um, we do have quite different perspectives on things. Um, and everybody brings a valuable perspective and it has a completely different dynamic from some of the work you've seen me do on video. Uh, I love, love doing this podcast. Uh, we'll keep doing it, um, but now I'll be bringing it to you on this channel here. So before we go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can receive notifications uh, and hit the little bell icon so that you get notified every time we post a new video, which in the future will include episodes of Speaking of Bitcoin. If you enjoyed today's live stream, um, consider sharing the episode, uh, liking the episode, and comment. Uh, if you did not uh, enjoy today's uh, episode, I would encourage you to tell the world how crappy it was by sharing it and liking it so that it goes up in the YouTube rankings so everybody can see what rotten work we do here. Uh, thank you so much for spending the weekend with us. Um, and thank you, Adam, Stephanie, and Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Andreas. Happy Halloween, so everybody. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>